We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. The CV, CV Report. TPS Report. The CV Report. Give us one word to describe what you're going through right now. Sucky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know it's just a Nissan Frontier, but in my mind, this thing's an M1 Abrams tank. Honey, take the wheel. I'm going to stick my head out of the sunroof. Look, any self-respecting veteran should grow a beard and have a belly. That's the dumbest thing I've heard all day. Like, if we're going to start getting angry now, it's it's a little late. Is live in D.C. with the update on all of this. Good morning. Maybe. I guess not. The CV Report. All right, welcome to the CV Report. I am your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. And on today's show, we're going to talk about a couple different things. We're going to talk about members of the greatest generation and the World War II Memorial. We'll hear from Holly Rotundi and find out what they have planned at that beautiful monument in Washington, D.C. And from the greatest generation, we go to one of the greatest new books on shelves this week. And we'll talk to Jack Murphy, the former Ranger, Army sniper, and author of Murphy's Law. Now, before you go, great. Another special operations guy, another spec war guy wrote his memoirs. Uh, This one is particularly cool. It's not just a series of combat stories, although there is some kick-ass combat in it. Uh, There's life lessons in it and something for everybody. But bottom line, he's just a flat-out good interview. So uh, stand by and we'll talk to Jack a little bit later. Up first, let's say hello to Holly Rotundi, the executive director of the Friends of the World War II Memorial. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Nice. Well, first, I want to say that I love your job. I love history, and I love what you guys are preserving over there with the World War II Memorial. Um, right there, kind of in line from the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial there, you pass by it, and it's absolutely gorgeous. It's granite, and it's circular kind of with the fountain there in the middle and any given day you can see members of the greatest generation sitting around and 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 recalling their great memories and those in the audience that are just honoring them so it's always touching to go down to the memorial but it's so much more than just granite and engravings and a fountain talk to me about um the mission of friends of the world war ii memorial sure so the friends of the national world war ii memorial was actually founded by the folks who built the memorial. They were charged with leading the effort to build the memorial and constructing it. And so today our mission is to honor and preserve the national memory of World War II. And we do that through a number of commemorative and educational programs. Uh, And and as you said, the experience of bringing that World War II memorial to life is really what we're we're doing by commemorating the the veterans at the memorial exposing them to um, a myriad of opportunities to be thanked and recognized, Mm -hmm. and then also providing our teachers and their students the opportunity to learn about the everyday men and women who serve. Yeah, that was something that caught my eye looking at the website. You teach teachers 
about the greatest generation. Um, I talk to me about that because don't most teachers learn of history in you know their college classes as they get their education certificate? We do. Uh, for us, the crux of our all of our education programming is community service. And so what we do is each summer we bring teachers from all across the nation to Washington, D.C. We expose them to different resources about World War II. We really expose them directly with the World War II veterans. We give them the opportunity to interact, really learn those stories. But for us, what we've done is we've made an investment in these teachers, and then we expect them to make an investment in their students and in their communities. So by attending our conference, they're committing to a year-long community service project within their communities when they return home working with their students. And so for the Friends of the National World War II Memorial, what we're hoping to do is to bring the values of the greatest generation to our current and future generations. Oh, yeah. So the fourth, fifth, seventh, eighth graders that are learning about these men and women might just kind of put some of that in their pocket and keep that moral fabric alive for, you know, a few years longer. Mm. Exactly. So, I mean, when we think about the greatest generation, we think about the men and women in uniform, but it was also every man, woman, and child in the nation was invested in the war effort. And so for us, for the Friends of the National World War II Memorial, it's really important to remind our current generations and our future generations that it it takes a village to, yeah. <laughs> to support and to grow and 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 we really feel like that's something that is very needed today. You're also supporting them in a different way. Uh, we're coming up on the 75th anniversary of D-Day. And I understand you guys have some events planned around that. Talk to me about that. Sure. The Friends of the National World War II Memorial, we have a number of commemorative programs that we do each year. But in 2016, we kicked off a four-year 75th anniversary commemoration of World War II. And we're the only organization in the country that is marking every single battle that Americans took part in at the World War II Memorial. So it's an opportunity to share the lessons and, and remind people of the service and sacrifices of our veterans and our service members. But it's also an opportunity to engage the public, to come to the memorial, to meet these veterans who served, and to really thank this generation that is leaving us very quickly. Mm, very cool. So you got your hands full this summer with a we lot did. of events because I know there were a lot of chapters and a lot of great stories from the World War II era. Hey, speaking of stories, um, you've been doing this for a while. You've certainly met hundreds, if not thousands, of members of the greatest generation. Share with me a story or two that is really, you know, that you've really kept and has touched your heart. Well, there is one story. This is, and it's related to D Day. It's a D Day veteran. Um, named Herman Zajcik, who was recently seen at the State of the Union address. But he was a D-Day vet, veteran, H-Hour, landed on the beaches at Normandy. And he um, took me aside at one of the Friends of the National Memorial, World War II Memorial ceremonies, and he had his wife with him and his two daughters. And he said, Holly, I have a story to tell you. And he talked about after landing at Normandy, he had the job of moving cars around, um, warning the, there was a convent with, and an orphanage, and he had to warn the nun and the children to get off the road when the trucks and tanks would come through because it could be dangerous. And he said when he went to say goodbye to the nun, she gave him a little gold cross, and he handed it to me at the ceremony. He wanted me to have it because 
it had meant so much to him to be participating in these ceremonies that the Friends of the National War Memorial hosted. And he wanted to, and I, I felt, I felt a little guilty. I said to the daughters, shouldn't, shouldn't this be something that he passes on to you? And they said, no, he wants you to have it. So that mm. was very tremendous. Herman will be at the D-Day ceremony on June 6th. So anyone who wants to come meet Herman, he's a wonderful gentleman. And uh, you can come down to the World War II Memorial and, oh. and meet him on June 6th. I mean, just gets, I mean, it gives you the goosebumps when you just think about it. Because, you know, here they are and they're grandfatherly guys mm -hmm. and they're sweet old guys. But, you know, those days, that day to have what it took to be able to scale the cliff face and then to secure that area and really free the world from a tyranny that, you know, would have ripped us apart. I mean, they really are incredible men. And um, I loved seeing him. As a matter of fact, you said at the state of the union and it was a really, it was my favorite moment. Cause I'm not a particularly politically inspired kind of guy. It was my favorite moment of that is when he had the three or four gentlemen stand up, you know, from world war two. And that's exactly who I remember seeing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that is he's impressive. Phenomenal. Uh, you also want to reach out to the men and women of the World War II generation. And um, what did you want to do by reaching out to them? So the Friends of the National World War II Memorial, as I mentioned, we do these commemorative ceremonies. We're in the midst of the 75th anniversary commemoration. So we did do a call out for all World War II veterans to reach out to us. We want to be able to honor them through our Facebook page, our Instagram, our Twitter, all of our social media. And we also want them to come to the ceremonies if they're able and to be able to inter interact with the public. Um, and so for us, we want to reach as many World War II veterans and the greatest generation as possible. So we've asked them to go to our website. We've asked their families to go to our website, which is www.iimemorialfriends.org to sign up. We have a form online. They can sign up. And they can register to either attend the ceremonies or just submit their bios and photos. And that way, the Friends of the National World War II Memorial can honor them and share their stories. Our public is so thirsty for information about the men and women who served both at, on the battlefront and on the home front. And it's important that we learn these stories now. I mean, they're, they're leaving us very quickly, and we want to make sure that they know that they're remembered and they're thanked and they're, they won't be forgotten. All right, now if you want information on how you can see more of the World War II Memorial or how you can honor a friend or a relative, check them out at www.iimemorialfriends.org. It's www.iim, as in two, memorialfriends.org. Up next, we've got a former Army Ranger, sniper, turned investigative journalist, and a guy with a book that has some incredible stories of combat and some incredible lessons we can all learn. We'll talk to Jack Murphy about his book, Murphy's Law, next. All right, let's talk about Jack Murphy. He served as a sniper and then a team leader in 3rd Ranger Battalion and as a senior weapons sergeant with 5th Special Forces Group. The Army's 3rd Battalion, 75th Regiment, or 375 as they're known, are highly trained warfighters and highly revered in the combat community. Rangers, and as Jack once told me, bat boys, are always ready to go into battle anytime, anywhere. And that's how Jack spent years of his life. From Afghanistan to Iraq, this guy's been chasing Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and every other kind of AK-47 toting terrorist you can imagine. 
But he left the military in 2010 and went on to graduate from Columbia University with a BA in political science. Murphy is the author of books like Reflexive Fire, Target Deck, Direct Action, and Gray Matter Splatter. Which I gotta say, Jack, it's a hell of a name for a heavy metal band or an album, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, <laughs> you're not a pop fiction author. You don't sit around and write by a fireplace with a MacBook drinking pumpkin spice craft beers while waxing poetic on the meaning of life. No, no, that's not Jack. He's like a special operations of journalism, reporting on war and terrorism and all things military, defense, and veteran. And he brings the insight of a guy who's actually been in a firefight rather than a big-brained policy wonk or a swivel chair general that makes his guest appearance on CNN. His work is seen on newsrep.com, and he can be heard weekly on the podcast Soft Rep Radio, which, full disclosure, one of the first things I listened to when I took this job and we started podcasting over here at Connecting Vets. So uh, thank you for uh, the lessons learned, Jack. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> Unlike his previous writings, his memoir that we're going to talk about today, Murphy's Law, shares a different kind of story. The true story of his life. So, with no further ado, Jack Murphy, damn glad you could join us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome, man. Now, I want to add VO Pro to your resume because you voiced your own book, and I've been binging on it lately. <laughs> and uh, the sound of your voice like puts me to sleep. It's 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 horrible. I I, I don't even want to admit that to another man that I listen to you. Is uh, am I ready to do like uh, voiceovers for anime and things like that? <laughs> well, maybe voiceovers for MMA. I don't know if you're. <laughs> <laughs> I know I want to play the uh, cutesy Japanese schoolgirls on anime. I, I think I'm up for it. I'm ready for this. <laughs> a little pitch change. Who knows what could happen, man? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, let's start with the book, man. You said you felt douchey about writing about yourself. And it's probably because what? Like so many other spec ops guys have in the past. It seems like every special operations guy writes a book. Uh, but you had a friend tell you writing this book was almost necessary and it forced you to deal with some of the shit that so many combat vets out there are dealing with. Tell me about that inspirational conversation you had. Yeah. I mean, these military memoirs are a, a genre of sorts. I mean, they're a trope at this point and um, most of them fall into the category of, you know, so, some of them anyway, not all of them, but a, a lot of them, in my opinion, fall into the category of guys boasting about how many Brown people they went and killed in the middle East. And, uh, it just kind of grosses me out. And I've spent too much time around soldiers and too much time around war for that kind of BS. Um, so the the book is packaged as a military memoir and I'm on the cover looking cool and there's some dramatic fog behind me. And, and I mean, that's kind of well, quite honestly what you do to sell uh, a book. But as far as the contents of the book, I wanted it to be something very different. And I wanted it to, to represent my own experiences and I wanted to tell them in a uh, authentic way. The um, conversation that led to me actually doing this and writing the book because I had put it off and I really didn't want to do it for some of the reasons I alluded to. Um, but my friend Jim West, who's a retired uh, 7th Group, 7th Special Forces Group Warrant Officer, um, was talking to me and I told him once, I was like, you know, I've written so many articles, I've written, uh, I've interviewed so many soldiers, I feel like I've told everyone's story but my own. And Jim was like, well, yeah, you know, that's PTSD, that's you avoiding what you've been through. And um, I, I've just done so much writing on war and on the military that it got to the point where it's almost like it's dishonest to not write this book. Like I, I have interviewed everyone, you know, people going right back to the Korean War and ask them to open up to me and tell me the truth about what they experienced. But at the same time, here I am 
And really, I'm not wanting to talk about what I did and what I've been through. And so this book was kind of me, I think, closing a chapter on that part of my life. Very cool. You know, I've interviewed other warfighters who have books out and, you know, they say, you know, there wasn't this magic light bulb moment like, oh, it was so cathartic. It was so healing. As soon as I hit the last typewriter key, bing, you know, it felt all better. But like, really, would a warfighter out there who maybe doesn't want to write a damn book, but just wants to heal a little bit, is it helpful to just get it all out? I mean, it depends for different people. And, and for some people, I think it is therapeutic to to write about these things. Um, I'm far enough removed from them. I, I left the military almost 10 years ago now. So um, with a decade of hindsight, I've kind of um, come to terms with a lot of these things already and, um, and, and kind of placed them or contextualized them in my own past. Um, so when I sat down to write the book, I mean, I feel like I was really ready to do that. Um, and yes, I certainly had to put some thought into it and how I wanted to artic articulate myself, but I was ready for it. And, you know, writing it wasn't, it wasn't traumatic for me. You know, it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't necessarily cathartic either. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, let's jump into it, man. I love talking to you guys, uh, especially in the special operations community, uh, because I find that like the things I'm dealing with in my life, I just draw some inspiration from uh, when I hear about guys that have like actually willed themselves to do something even harder. And, you know, it's true with pro athletes. I'm not just, you know, putting you up on a pedestal. But I mean, when I hear about somebody that has achieved something uh, greater than, you know, my mundane life, it helps me pull through my tough times. And one of the things I immediately got from early on in the book was that never give up. And even when quitting kind of seems okay, you know, many of us like on our way into work, we're like, God, this job sucks. I could just quit and go do my own thing. I mean, like you can almost rationalize anything. Um, you didn't, you didn't accept failure, even though you experienced it. Talk to me about experiencing failure in ranger school. You actually failed the first time. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I, uh, I flunked out of the land navigation portion of the course and, um, you know, I was asked if I wanted to recycle the course, and I said, yeah, for uh, guys who are in Ranger Battalion, it's mandatory, basically. If you want to have any sort of leadership position, you need to graduate from Ranger School. So it, uh, quitting was a non-starter um, for me, and um, I got placed in a recycle <laughs> platoon called Vons Platoon, and I was there for a long time because uh, it went right through the holidays, right through the Christmas holidays, and then when it came back from Christmas in uh, – 2004, um, we started the course again and went through it all over again. So, I mean, the thing is that these courses are not designed to be easy. Um, they're designed to weed people out and the military does reward perseverance. Um, if you fail the first time, they will give you often an opportunity to try it again. Um, so I think they like to see those people who, you know, keep trying and keep chugging away at it. Um, not all of us, you know, especially myself, are Captain America. I was not the captain of the football team in high school. I was not the kid who always raised my hand in class because I had the answers. I was just average. Um, so <laughs> I, that was something I wanted to um, describe to the reader that, you know, special operations soldiers are not necessarily supermen. They're, we're not necessarily superheroes. Um, a lot of us are just people who, you know, threw our, our name in the hat. We volunteered and, uh, and we manned up and sucked it up through some, uh, some pretty tough stuff. 
So is drawing on that power, that will to get through it, is that something that's good advice for all of us to use, even in our own lives? Like when we think stuff's too much or, you know, we hate our job. I mean, is that something that we should draw on and know that it's deep within our own well? I would caution you or I would caution anybody against directly taking that mentality and trying to apply it to the civilian world um, just because they're so different. And in the civilian world, you may end up in some corporate job that is just killing you, you know, spiritually or psychologically or whatever. And you need to know when to quit. Um, I found this out myself when I was uh, when I was going to college and I was trying to do everything. I mean, I was I was a husband. I was a father. I was um, working for this startup company. I was writing news articles. I was writing novels. I was a full time student at Columbia University. I was doing so much. And in retrospect, what I realized was I was trying to recreate this high stress environment I was used to working in in the military. But that isn't really um, it doesn't really work in the civilian world. And you have to take care of yourself. So if you're at a dead end, if you're at some sort of impasse, um, you have to know when to quit and walk away um, for your own good. Uh, not It's not. Um, it's not like going through BUDS or Ranger School or Special Forces Assessment and Selection where you just kind of got to go head down and just suck it up. I, I think in the civilian world, you've got to know when to walk away. Wow. And in sometimes our civilian life mimics situations you guys got into where it wasn't so much quitting as you knew when to like back off or when to change position or when to sure. change your tactics, you know, and sometimes sure. in life we're trudging through and we're not changing our tactics. Um Really cool insight. See, I told you. I learned something from you guys every time I talk to you, man. Okay, uh, let's jump into combat stories real quick. The book jumps right into it. Uh, I got to say, uh, John waning is a term I learned within like the first <laughs> two chapters where I, I think you've now coined that. And it means hanging off a helicopter while steadying your gun to shoot bad guys down below. Um, what was one of your favorite combat missions you described in the book? Oh, wow. Well, that one was definitely exciting. I was, let's see, 21 years old and, um, you know, 160th Special Operations Aviation sent Little Bird helicopters down to our location. We were down in uh, Kaust on a fob called Salerno. And um, I was a, uh, you know, trained sniper in Ranger Battalion. You know, I'd been through a lot of training at that point, but I had never done what we were calling aerial platform shooting. And, um, it was just an interesting experience to say the least. I had to learn how to do that very quickly and then apply it in combat. Um, and I think I've described in the book too. my sniper partner, Joe is on the other helicopter and how the little bird, they actually saw the, the target, the bad guy moving around inside the compound. So the little bird just did like a dive bomber run, run straight into the middle of one of these walled compounds in Afghanistan pulled up at the very last minute and just like washed out the entire courtyard of the compound in dust uh, just to keep this guy's head down as the uh, Humvees that, you know, the ground force element was on were like, you know, a minute, 30 seconds away just to delay the, these guys and, and slow them down. Um, so that was, that was definitely an incredible experience. Um, but then going to Iraq in uh, 2005, um, there were tons of operations, and I think I tried to point out in the book that it was just like a frenzied summer of you know time-sensitive targets and rolling out on one operation after the next during day, during the night, and you're just completely exhausted. Um, but I still tried to tease out some funny moments um, as, as well as some horrifying moments from that deployment in the book. 
and in fact, uh, <laughs> I loved the chase scene with some private driving the vehicle, and you're kind of yes. you're, you're like heads up to outside the vehicle, and he's flying because they've said that one of your high value targets or an HVT is in front of you on this you know in this car, and you're oh. chasing this Opal through the city streets, and this kid's just like flooring it. And you're like, yeah, and that, that vehicle it was a eight wheeled Striker armored vehicle, and I mean off the top of my head, I think they weigh like twenty three tons. They are uh, just huge vehicles. And he's just gunning it down these like narrow Iraqi streets in Mosul chasing after this car. And I mean, like, it felt like we're going up on four wheels on one side. And I mean, I just I think the average person just has no idea what it's like to have your life resting in the hands of a 19 year old army private um, (laughs) who is behind the wheel of a 23 ton armored vehicle. Uh, I just don't think the average person gets that. Um, yeah, so yeah, that was definitely an interesting experience. Uh, one more, uh, there was one mission you went on where you captured six and a half men. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was, um, it was one of the first missions we did during the daylight. Um, because we really wanted to operate during the night only because our night vision goggles give us such a big advantage over the enemy. But this was the uh, 2005 General Stanley McChrystal um, high value target capture kill industrial grade counterterrorism machine. Right. So we're doing <laughs> operations during the day very soon. Um, and they're just sending us out at all hours. So we went out on the on I think it was our first daylight mission of that deployment um, into Mosul. Um, I was on the vehicles because I was the the commander, so to speak, the tank commander or tactical commander on one of the strikers. Um, the assaulters went into the target structure. Um, and within you know a minute or so, our lieutenant, our platoon leader, he comes up over the radio and he says, "Objective secured. Six and a half men detained. There's six and a half fighting age males detained." And uh, we're all listening to this like six and a half. Like, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> and uh, our company commander back at the Ford operating base, he gets on the net and he's like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" And the PL comes back over the net. He's like, we've detained six men and one midget. (laughs) We're all like just busting up laughing on the vehicles. And um, a few minutes later, he says, you know, okay, we're uh, we're pulling off the objective. Uh, We're taking off the fighting age males and we're packing the midget up in a rucksack. And the company commander comes over the net, starts screaming. He's like, leave the fucking midget. We don't need him. And, uh, yeah, there were, there were pictures of the PL and, uh, and that, that little man um, posted up in our uh, tactical operations center for quite a while after that. <laughs> that is awesome. That is just uh, – and you know what? Look, I mean, it's not PC, but frankly, no, it's, no. it's the gallows humor that gets us through some of these really tough times. And, uh, and it's also the Dude, that made me laugh out loud. With, when I was with Special Forces in 2009, we were back in the same city and we crashed a wedding. Um, that was pretty fun. It's like a 16 year old girl getting married off to a terrorist. Oh my God. Were there, were there past hors d'oeuvres? Did you at least get some crab cakes? No, no, but there was a goat. The dowry was, uh, just sitting there panting in the courtyard throughout the uh, duration of that mission. (laughs) That goat owes you one. I take it. He never got sacrificed. That's good. That's good. I feel like maybe the girl owes us one too. (laughs) Uh, that's, it's funny. All right. 
Hey, let's switch gears real quick because not all missions were great, but yeah. some of them taught you some really valuable life lessons. And I got this one from early in the book too, but it was the one where you had made the decision to ambush the enemy as they were reported on the road and they were going to be coming up to your position and you wanted to stop them before they got back to the base where the guys were. Um, so you made the decision to kind of ambush him, to run off into the bush and to head him off. And as you did that, stuff went sideways and you ran into a situation that nearly cost you your career. Well, not just my career, it could have ended all of our lives. Um, yes, I was at the, uh, it, it was a recon mission to recon the compound belonging to the guy who planned the ambush that killed Pat Tillman in Afghanistan. This was the winter of 2004. And I was at the mission support site, um, which is basically, um, to try to describe it, it's where the guy is, you know, laid up with the radio while the smaller recon element goes forward and, and actually recons the objective. And I was a sniper. The recce element, the actual, um, you know, six, uh, six or seven man recon element was out. And they reported back to us that there was a, a 10 man enemy element moving towards us. Um, and reported that one of them had a recoilless rifle. So, I mean, this was, this was serious and it was imminent. So I made the decision that I was going to lay in a hasty near ambush as opposed to just kind of waiting at the MSS to get hit and give the enemy the initiative. So we went about, you know, maybe 800 meters down the road and laid in this hasty ambush. It was me, one other American and about 10 Afghan paramilitary soldiers. Um, set in the ambush and um after a few minutes i heard some i heard some people coming through um through actually almost outside our kill zone i had to adjust um my my lane of fire so to speak and um i saw the silhouette a uh, person with a gun in their hand with a afghan pakol cap on the top of their head and I took the shot. Um, they were about to move through our kill zone and then they would have hit the MSS, which is where another American soldier um, would have been there, you know, would have been killed. So I took the shot. Uh, a pretty substantial firefight ensued. Um, there were bullets chewing up the tree that I was taking cover behind. Um, there were rounds kicking up dirt into my eyes. Um, I, I found out later there were several grenades going off. Um, and one of the Afghans eventually got up and started jumping up and down, screaming, saying like, no shoot, no shoot. And, you know, something was wrong. He had his little ICOM radio. Um, we had one radio um, with intermittent communications. There was a lot of things we didn't know was going on. We couldn't contact certain people. Um, and I decided, I, I mean, I'm kind of abbreviating all of this, but I decided that I had to go down there and resolve this situation, whatever it was. We thought maybe we hit a um, American special forces team that showed up in the area and didn't tell us, or maybe they were Afghan policemen that walked into our ambush. We didn't know. So I, I walked down to the kill zone to find out. And when I did, I came face to face with my friend, Paul, who was the assistant recce team leader of our recce element that was out reconning the objective. And, you know, he looked at me and I looked at him and he was like, Murph. And I was like, Paul, like what the fuck just happened? And what had happened was a friendly fire incident was that the recce element had returned uh, or had begun returning to the MSS. And we didn't know that. Um, so they walked into our ambush that was meant for the enemy. 
And um, that was uh, the beginning of quite an incident, to say the least. Quite an incident, indeed. And there's a life lesson that we can all learn from that. And I'm going to click pause on the podcast and the interview for right now. Now, if you want to hear the full, unfiltered, unedited version of that interview with Jack Murphy on his book, Murphy's Law, you can check it out on the podcast, Vet Story, which you can find everywhere you find podcasts and our fine website, ConnectingVets.com. I want to thank both of our guests today, Jack Murphy, of course, and Holly Rotundi, friends of the World War II Memorial. Now, if you want more interesting veteran news and things about the veteran lifestyle, again, check out the front page at ConnectingVets.com. Tons of articles there. And now you can find us on Facebook and Twitter as well, at ConnectingVets. I'm Phil Briggs, and I'll talk to you on the next episode of The CV Report. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.